that uh, generations before did not get to experience. But there's also detriments to that as well. In this age of online transactions, social media, email scams, you've all probably been emailed the uh, letter that you've got the Nigerian king that you know wants to pass on the millions of dollars to you. Uh, all, all these things that take place, uh, identity theft has grown exponentially. I was looking at one report that said that in, in the United States, losses from all categories, there's different kinds of categories of identity theft, when you throw all those categories together, together, identity theft grew, grew 42% from, from $502.5 billion worth of losses in 2019 to $712.4 of dollars of losses in 2020. Uh, we're not immune to this. In 2019, the state of Texas ranked fifth in the nation of the number of identity theft reports per 100,000 people. Uh, let's go even a little bit narrower. In, in, the, in, in the DFW Metroplex, there's 384 metropolitan statistical areas in the United States. These are areas of, of populations uh, of, of 50,000 or more. And out of these 384 metropolitan areas, the DFW Metroplex ranked eighth last year in the number of identity theft reports per capita. Eighth out of 384. But I want to present to you this morning and, 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 and make the uh, 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 point that the most malicious identity thief is not sitting behind a computer screen today. He is the prince of the power of the air who viciously opposes all who belong to the family of God. And those beings under his authority, those beings under his, in, in, his influence, use their power to attack the identity of believers. And what makes this so effective is because of the extent of our depravity. Even, even, even after salvation, we're still affected by depravity. Uh, we're, start, we're twisted because of sin. We're not completely glorified yet. We're not completely sanctified yet. And because of that fact, because of the extent of our depravity, we can be robbed of the realization of our identity, especially when circumstances are dark and difficult. When, when we're going through, through difficult times, it's easy to forget who we are in Christ. It's easy to start blaming God. It's easy, easy to start questioning God. It's easy to start doubting God. I've done it. Uh, I'm sure somewhere in the future I'll do it again. Uh, you know, I've done it this year. I've done it this month. And, and it's those things that happen. And, 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 and Satan seizes upon those times to attack our identity about who we are in Christ in order that we can be thwarted in our walk with the Lord and our, our relationship with Him dwindle. But Peter in our text today reminds these believers of their true identity and its implications for their life in a world that shuns and shames those who follow Jesus Christ. Again, remember, this is a group of people, probably primarily Jewish believers, who have been shunned by their culture. They have been shamed by their culture. They have lost a lot. They've lost their homes. They've lost their livelihoods. They've lost the opportunity to be able to uh, uh, gather together because they've been scattered all throughout Asia Minor. And, and Peter is reminding them uh, of who they are in Christ to encourage them during the difficult days that they're facing. And this morning's text 
is pivotal. Verses 6, 7, and 8, these texts, this text is pivotal for our understanding and, our ed- and for our edification. As we said earlier, we're going to spend at least one more week in these three verses. Uh, it might be two, uh, but at least one more week in these three verses. And this morning, our focus, is, uh, our focus will be upon verse 6 and the first part of verse 7, if you'll look at it again. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, so the honor is for you who believe. In these verses that we just read, Peter cites Isaiah 28 and verse 16, and we'll be looking at that passage in a little bit. But he cites Isaiah 28, 16 to prove a point and to apply it to their current situation. And so our time today is going to be invested by examining. We're, we're, going, we're, we're, not, we're not digging with the shovel today, we, we, and we're not, we, we've got even something bigger than the backhoe. We're, we're going to be digging today and looking at, at, at some things to help us understand. What, what, when Peter's writing this, who I think is primarily Jewish believers, they're automatically picking up on this. They're familiar with, with the prophecies and with the passages in the Hebrew Scriptures. We're not quite so as much, and, and, and it's not the culture that we came from. It, it, it's not our background. And so we're going to have to spend some time here, and we're going to invest it by examining the structure of verses 6 through 8 and its relationship to verses 4 through 5. We're going to talk about what, why, what, what's the purpose of verses 6 through 8, and how does that relate to verses 4 and 5. We're going to look at the context of Isaiah 28, 16. Why does he cite this passage? What is he trying to get across? This is more than just a proof text. This is more than just something he's pulling out of the air to prove a point. Why is he he citing this passage? And if he's citing it, what are the implications of Peter's use of Isaiah 28 and verse 16? What's the reason for it? What's the implication? What does he want us to take away from the fact that he has chosen this particular passage to cite? So that's where we're going to be looking at today. It's going to sound more like, a, more like a, uh, a lecture, more like something you might get in a classroom than maybe from behind a pulpit. But it's essential. It's necessary for us to be able to understand and, and to, to apply this passage of Scripture to our life. So what is the structure and relationship? Again, let's read verses 6 through 8. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. In these three verses, verses 6 through 8, Peter cites, they're not not exact quotations, but Peter cites three Old Testament passages. Two of those passages he uses the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. The other passage he uses the Hebrew Masoretic text. But in all three of those passages, he doesn't quote it exactly. And and that's typical. That is typical when you have New Testament writers taking and and, and using the Old Testament. They don't always quote it exactly. They cite it. Uh, And so here we have three occasions in these three verses. In verse 6, he cites Isaiah 28 and verse 16. In verse 7, he cites Psalm 118 and verse 22. 
And in verse 8, he goes back and he cites Isaiah 8, verse 14. So Peter is using these three passages of Scripture to do something. Well, what is Peter doing here? Well, the first thing Peter does, he uses this to prove the point made in verse 4. He's using this to prove the point, these three passages of Scripture, to prove his point in verse 4. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. What is the point that Peter is making in verse 4? The point being made by Peter is this, that this Jesus whom they worship and whom the world shuns has been chosen by God to be the living cornerstone of the spiritual temple that God is building. So this Jesus, this Jesus, because, and again, why are these people in the situation that they're in? They're, they're in the situation that they're in because they have put their faith and trust in Jesus. That's why they're there. They're being persecuted because they are Christians. Because they, 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 they proclaim belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, and the point that Peter makes in verse 4 is that this Jesus, this Jesus whom they worship, it, 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 he, it's re, they, he's rejected by men. Verse 4 says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, he's shunned, he's shamed by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. This Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the living stone that God is using to build His spiritual temple. His spiritual temple that is made up, as we looked at last week, all of us. We are stones. As believers, we are stones in that spiritual temple. Okay, that's His point. That's His premise. But how does He prove His point? He proves His point by citing Scripture. Again, look at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture. For it stands in Scripture. You don't find that phrase used very often. The, the, the Greek words, I've got them up there on the, on the screen for you. You do not find these Greek words used very often in the New Testament. But you do find them in the writings of, of, the, of the Septuagint. You find them in the book of Maccabees. Uh, uh, you have uh, Josephus, uh, though it's not in the Hebrew Scriptures. Josephus, the historian, when he's making points, when he's wanting to use Scripture to make his proof, Josephus uses this phrase. And, and, and this phrase, basically, it says, for it stands in Scripture. Here's the proof of my point. Here's the standing for my argument. And the standing for my argument that this Jesus whom you worship who is shunned by men, is the same Jesus whom God is using, whom God sees as precious, whom God has elected to make Him the cornerstone, to make Him the living stone by which the spiritual temple of God is being built. And he proves it with Scripture. He proves it with Scripture. What Peter is proclaiming has its authority and foundation in Scriptures. And the point that he makes in verse 4, he uses three passages of Scripture to prove his point. Two from Isaiah, one from the book of Psalms. That's how he's proving his point, through the authority and foundation of Scriptures, which is where we should go to prove our points, where we should go to know how we're to live, where we should, where we should go to figure out our doctrine, to figure out what we believe. We go to the Scriptures because the Scriptures have authority because it is indeed the very Word of God. They are authoritative. They are sufficient. In fact... Peter's premise is in these three scriptures. Peter's premise is that the scriptures cited 
are all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone that God has laid in Zion. And if you, put your faith, if you believe in Him, you'll not be put to shame. He is the stone that the builders rejected, but God has made the cornerstone. And Jesus is also a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So he, he, he proves his point by using all three of these passages of Scripture and that Jesus is the one who these Scriptures are talking about. But that is not his emphasis. His emphasis, however, is not on the identification of the stone. His point in here, he's making the point that Jesus is, that Jesus, the one shunned and shamed by the Jewish leaders, shunned and shamed by the majority of this Jewish people, this Jesus who was shunned and shamed is indeed precious and chosen in God's sight and is the chief cornerstone. But his point here, his emphasis here, his emphasis is not to show these people that Jesus is this. Uh, he, it's certainly important, but it's not the emphasis. The emphasis is not on the identification of the stone, but rather on the stone's identification with the stones, giving them their identity. His emphasis is not upon, he's not telling them these truths so that they can walk out of, uh, of, of, after reading it and hearing it in church, they can walk out and say, hey, you know what? You know what I gleaned today? Jesus is the living stone. Now, is that a truth that's important? It certainly is. Is that a truth that is foundational to our faith? It certainly is. But what Peter wanted his audience to walk away from after reading these verses is not that Jesus is the stone, but that not, not, not only that Jesus is the stone, the cornerstone, the living stone, but because they have come to him, but because, and because they have believed in him, their identity comes from him. That's the point. That their identity comes from their relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the emphasis. You say, how do you know this, Greg? We know this because of what Peter, what, how Peter structures this passage of Scripture. First of all, we know this by Peter's use of a chiasm. And we've, we've explained to you what a chiasm is. You know, you have a truth here, corresponding truth here. Truth here, corresponding truth here. And what you have in the middle is what the emphasis is about. Let's look at the text again from verses 4 through 8. In the first part of verse 4, you see the rejection of the living stone. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. Rejected by men. Look at the, uh, the latter part of verse 7 and verse 8. You also have, not only you have the rejection of the cornerstone. Look at verse 7. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So you have the rejection of the living stone. You have the rejection of the cornerstone. Look at the, the, middle, the latter part of verse 4. You have God's election of the living stone. Look at verse 4. He's rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Look at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you 
who believe. Then you have God's election of the living stone. You have God's election of the cornerstone. And look what's right in the middle. Right in the middle is verse 5. Look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's the emphasis, the connection between the stone and the living stone, between the stone and the stones, and the implication, how that is worked out in our lives. So not only you have the chiasm, but you have another thing. You have word order. As we've talked to you about, word order in Greek is different than word order in... Unless we want to sound like Yoda, we put our subject before the verb, okay? Now, if you want to, if you want to talk Yodaese, or whatever they call it, you know, you, you, you switch that around. But if you want to talk normal English, subject comes before the verb. In Greek, you can have the subject at the beginning, in the middle, at the end... It doesn't matter. It, it, can, it can be anywhere, which kind of makes it difficult sometimes. You've got to find the subject. And there's, there's clues that help you to find that subject. But word order is given in order to what, the, what he wants to emphasize. And so when you go to verse 5, look at verse 5. And the English gives us the word order here, at least in the beginning of it. Look at verse 5. You yourselves. You yourselves. Kai altoi. Kai is a word, it's a conjunction. It can, mean, it can mean and, even, also. It's got a lot of things that it can mean, but it can also be used for emphasis. Alto is, is yourself. You, I'm, I'm sorry, alto is you. You, yourself. You, yourself. So there's an emphasis there. He's talking about you, yourself. You yourself are, are, living, are, are stones that are connected to this living stone. But also in verse 7, look at verse 7. And it doesn't do that in English. It, doesn't, it says in English, it says, So the honor is for you who believe. If you were to look at it in the Greek text, the first word in the Greek text is to you. To you, therefore, the honor is for the believing ones. To you, therefore, the honor is for the believing ones. Again, to you, it's the emphasis there. There's an emphasis that Peter is wanting to get across, and that emphasis is the connection between the living stone and the stones. He wants us to understand our identity. It's it's grounded upon our connection to Christ. Our identity is not in the situation that we find ourselves in. Our identity is not found in the circumstances that we are facing. Our identity is not found in what is going on in our world. Our identity is not found in anything of this world. Yes, there are things that identify me in this world. I am a white senior male, okay? That's an identification marker that can be put upon me. A Midwesterner. I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, Those are all earthly identifiers of me. But my primary identifier, is that I am connected to Jesus Christ. I'm a son of God. I'm a son of God. I'm a child of God. These verses are cited not merely to make a Christological statement, but to provide the basis for a description of the believing community's identity. Again, remember, these words are plural. 
plural. He's talking about us. Our identity is connected to Christ. It's not primarily a lesson about who Jesus is. It's it's not primarily Christological. It's not primarily a lesson or truths about who Jesus is. Those truths are important. But it's not primarily to make a Christological statement. Peter wants them to come to an understanding and to describe to them what it means to be part of a believing community. Who are we? Who are we? What is our identity? So, why does Peter use Isaiah 28, 16? Why does he use that? Now, keep, uh, you might want to keep your place there. And Peter will be back. And turn over to Isaiah 28. And we'll look at that passage in just a moment. Isaiah 28. What is going on in Isaiah 28? We're not going to take the time to read it. You can, you can read the chapter if you want to multitask and read while, I'm, uh, read while you're listening. That's fine as well. But Isaiah, in, in chapter 28, Isaiah is delivering a message of judgment. It's a message of judgment against both the northern and the southern kingdom. And he describes them as drunken leaders. They have completely given themselves over to the passions of their flesh. They are drunken leaders. And he describes them as such. He also describes them as prideful. And that, pri- that pride is, is demonstrated by them scoffing at the message of God. Their pride is also demonstrated in the fact that they, ha- they, are, they are making an alliance with Egypt to protect them from Assyria. So... Isaiah is writing a message of judgment. He's going to let them know what you're trusting. You think you're trusting in Egypt, but what you're really trusting in is death. (laughs) Trusting in Egypt is like trusting in death. You're going to die. You're going to die. You've put your trust, instead of putting your trust in me, you're putting your trust in another nation. So they're proud. They scoffed at the message of God, and they relied upon their alliance with Egypt to protect them from Assyria. So Isaiah prophesies. He prophesies that they will be swept away by the Assyrians. But those who put their trust in the tested, approved stone God has laid in Zion will be delivered. Judah will. The northern kingdom won't. The northern kingdom is not taken over by Assyria. I'm, I'm sorry, the northern kingdom is ravaged by Assyria. The southern kingdom is not. Look at chapter 28. Look at verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. He says, you think you're putting your trust. But he says, you've put your trust in the wrong place. Therefore, says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. This is the verse that Peter quotes. So, as we look at this passage of Scripture... Who's the tested stone? Now, if you were to Google that and start looking at it, you're going to find 
reams and reams and reams of digital paper <laughs> that is used to talk about who this tested stone is. And, it, and it's highly debated. And, and there's several possibilities. But I believe Isaiah is referring to the Davidic monarchy. That in this passage, the tested stone, the precious stone that God is talking about here is the Davidic monarchy. You say, what are you basing that on? Well, first of all, the stone is established in Zion. He says, therefore says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid, past tense, past tense, as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. The stone is established in Zion. Zion is the, often it's used for the whole nation. A lot of times it's used for the particular, the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is not only the religious capital of the nation, it's also the political capital of the, of the United Kingdom, and it was the seat of the Davidic monarchy. It's the place where covenants were made. If there's a covenant that is being to be made between our nation and another nation, and they want to make it, a, make it look as official as it possibly can be, they will do that in Washington, D.C. Uh, in fact, if a covenant is to be ratified, certain covenants that have to be, certain treaties that have to be ratified, they have to be ratified by the Senate. And the Senate meets in Washington, D.C. The same here. Covenants were if Israel was making a covenant with somebody, that covenant would be made in Jerusalem. Also, we find when you look at numerous passages in the in the Hebrew Scriptures, the covenant and promises God made to David are connected with the call to trust God. I made a promise to David that there would be someone from from his seed that will be sitting on the throne. Trust me. Trust me. That, that, that's the thing he, that's, that's, that's what God says to Hezekiah. That's what God says to the nation through many of the prophets. God has made a sure promise to David that the nation will stand. Trust me. Don't put your trust in Egypt. Don't put your trust in other nations. Don't put your trust in your own strength. Put your trust in the fact that I have made an everlasting covenant with David. Trust me. Trust me. Also, Isaiah condemns the leaders for their trust in a worthless covenant with other nations when he has made an everlasting covenant with them. He says, because you have said we have made, verse 15, because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. We've made a covenant with Egypt to protect us. We have an agreement. God says, you don't need that agreement. He said, because I have laid, past tense, I have laid a foundation in Zion. A stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. You have the Davidic monarchy. You have the promise that I've made to David. And as we've we've emphasized a couple times already, the past tense, has laid, speaks of an historical realization that has an eternal existence. At a point in history where God comes to David and says, David, you want to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. When David wants to build the temple, and he says, no, you're a man of war. You want to build me a house? You're not allowed to do that, but I'm going to build you a house. There is going to be a, there is going to be a king who will be from your loins, who will sit upon your throne, and who will rule 
forever. And David goes, whoa, who am I? Who am I? Ed Glennie, as a professor that I had at Central, states it well. He says, the message of Isaiah 28, 16 for the people of Judah is to look to God who has established a secure foundation for His people. All who are rightly related to God and believe the promises He made to David are secure and will be part of the eternal house that God promised David. That's As, as Isaiah is making this prophecy, this is what the people are hearing. They're not thinking Jesus Christ here. They are to put their hope, though, in the Davidic monarchy that God made a promise to David that if, they, if, if, if the kings and the people will abide by the covenant that God has made with them, God will establish them forever. And God will establish the, God will establish the kingdom of David forever. He made him that promise. He made him that promise. And so if these people that Isaiah is writing to will put their trust in the covenant that God has made with the Davidic monarchy, they're safe. They're safe. And they will be part of that eternal house that God promised David. So, in chapter 2 and verse 6, back in 1 Peter, Peter clearly identifies... When you go look at chapter 2 and verse 6, he says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious... And, who, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Peter takes this passage in Isaiah and he applies it to Jesus and identifies Jesus as, as the Messiah. He identifies Jesus as the one who is fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy and is the ultimate fulfillment of the promises made to David. Now, you look at this passage and you say, wait a second. How in the world do you get Jesus out of Isaiah 28, 16? I mean, Isaiah is making this statement to a group of people in that time period. And he's not... when they, when they heard this prophecy, and when God tells them, you're putting your trust in the wrong covenant. You're tr- I've already made a covenant with you. And that covenant was laid in Zion. And it, it was a tested stone, a, a precious cornerstone. And I've already made a covenant. And that covenant with the nation is made to you through the Davidic covenant. Would those people in hearing that would have thought, hey, he's talking about Jesus Christ. I say, No. No, but yet Peter says, this is who Isaiah is ultimately talking about. How do you get there? How do you get there? Well, this is not predictive prophecy. This is typological prophecy. This is not predictive prophecy. Predictive prophecy is the kind of prophecy that is found in the book of Micah, where the prophet says, in Bethlehem, The one who's going to redeem the nation is going to be born. In Bethlehem. And so, remember when the Magi come to to Herod and, and, uh, you know, they ask him about, you know, where where do we find the king of the Jews? And Herod consults some folks and they come back and they quote 
And lo and behold, in Bethlehem, knows where he's going to be born. And, 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 and we find that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Boom, boom. It's predictive. But typological prophecy is this kind of prophecy. It's a divinely intended pattern of events. And this is a technical definition here. A divinely intended pattern of events encompassing both historical correspondence and intensification. In other words, it happened in history. That's the type. But God divinely takes this historical moment in time and He intensifies it and it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the antitype. You have this type of what's taking place here, and and God divinely orchestrates that circumstance, and in that circumstance you find, and God takes that same circumstance but intensifies it, and you find the ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And let me give you an example. Go to Hosea chapter... Keep your place there in uh, in, uh, 1 Peter, and go to Hosea chapter 11. Go to Hosea chapter 11. And I want us to look at verses 1 and 2. If, you, if you've got a Bible that has a subject line or whatever, in my Bible, right, what it says above chapter 11 is this, the Lord's love for Israel. You got something similar to that? Okay. Look at verse 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Who is verse 1 talking about? Anybody? I heard it. Say it. Israel. Any doubts about that? I mean, any doubts about that it's not Israel? When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. What's he talking about when he says, out of Egypt I called my son? The what? Starts with an E. Whole book. The Exodus, okay? You have the Exodus. He calls his people out of Egypt. They are his son. And he calls them out of Egypt. And verse 2 what? It describes for us what, what took place, doesn't it? After he called them out. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. What did they do the whole time they were wandering in the wilderness? And before even they started having to wander. They're constantly doing what? Disobeying God, aren't they? Constantly disobeying God. You know, they, they, they don't have enough faith to trust God. And God says, okay, you were gone 40 days. You're going to spend every, for every day a year. 40 years. Just looping 820, okay? You know, just looping 820 for 40 years. Because of their disobedience and because of their worship. There is no doubt that Isaiah, I'm sorry, that Hosea is talking about the nation of Israel. Now turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Let's look at... Let's, the story begins in verse 13. Well, it picks up. The, the Magi have visited. Herod says, when you find out where he's at, come back and let me know. So I can come and worship him also. What does Herod want to do? Kill him. 
when they don't come back, what does Herod do? Every child two years and older, two years and younger in the city of Bethlehem, which was already, uh, the predictive prophecy, kill him. Okay, look at verse 16. Uh, I'm sorry, no, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord, the they there are the Magi. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said... Oh, and, and by the way, who's the first Israelite that ends up in Egypt? Joseph, okay. Here's another Joseph. He's fixing ready to tell him something. He says to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Oh, wait a second. That's not who the prophet's referring to in Hebrews chapter, I'm sorry, in Hosea chapter 11. Who, who is the prophet referring to in Hosea chapter 11? The whole nation. But Matthew says this was to fulfill the prophecy. This was to fulfill the prophecy. So what in the world is going on here? Typological prophecy. God is taking a divinely orchestrated historical event and he corresponds it with something later in history but intensifies it. Now, let me show you. The first one to go down into Egypt was Joseph. God tells this Joseph, you take your son and go to Egypt. When Hosea 11 happens and they come out of Egypt, they go and spy the land and for 40 days and they come back and they don't trust God. And because they don't trust God, they wander in the wilderness for 40, de- for 40 years. Jesus ever go to a wilderness? How many days was he in that wilderness? Forty days. Did Jesus face temptations in that wilderness? Does he defeat Satan or does he, does he trust God or does he not trust God? He trusts God. You see what I'm saying? See the point I'm making? This historical event, this historical event, and God takes and corresponds a different historical event, but he intensifies it. Jesus is the Son. Jesus is the Son who doesn't fail like the nation, but trusts God. But trusts God. That's an example of what Peter is doing with Isaiah 28, 16. With Isaiah 28, 16. Jesus is the ultimate Davidic king who if people will put their trust in Him, need not be ashamed. The recipients that heard Isaiah speak these words are, think, are, are referring it to the Davidic kingdom. Is, is Jesus part of the Davidic kingdom? He's the ultimate, ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom, isn't He? He's the one who's going to sit upon the throne of His father David forever and ever and ever and ever. And so Jesus, Isaiah, or Peter takes, I'll get one of these guys figured out, okay? P- Peter takes this historical, divinely historical event that Isaiah talks about, 
and he takes and he takes the how that historical event corresponds with Jesus, but it's also intensified. Jesus is the ultimate king. All the kings from David's loins failed and failed. Even the good kings failed and failed and failed and failed and failed. But Jesus doesn't fail. He doesn't fail. So, I know that, that I mean, I know I've, I've given you a lot. But having identified Jesus as the one who is the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, so what are the implications? Okay, all that is well and good. You can agree or disagree with what I've had to say. But as uh, a professor used to say, what is the so what of this passage? What's the so what? Okay? Typological prophecy. What What a day we had in the Lord. What's the so what? What difference does it make? Well, go back to our text in Peter. Look at what he says, beginning in the latter part of verse 6. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. Belief in Christ brings privilege and deliverance to the believing community. How? How? Well, back in Isaiah 28, in verse 16, Isaiah says, Whoever believes in him will not be in haste. Peter uses a different word. He uses it will not be put to shame. The idea of, of haste here has the idea of panic, of making a decision out of panic. You ever been in a situation, you, you ever made a decision out of panic? I have. You know, a decision out of fear? Usually, usually, not always, usually those decisions are what kind of decisions? Wrong ones, aren't they, <laughs> Wrong ones. So he applies Isaiah. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. So when I put, and he tells those back in Isaiah, if you'll put your faith and trust in the Davidic monarchy and the covenant that I made with David, if you'll put your trust, instead of putting your trust in the covenant that you made with Egypt to deliver you, if you'll put your trust in the covenant that I made with David, that if you will follow me and trust me, I will uphold his throne forever. If you'll put your trust there, then he says, you will not be in haste. You'll not make decisions out of panic. You'll not have to act out of panic. So in times of crisis and uncertainty, we are secure There is no need to act in panic. Whatever hurt we're experiencing, whatever trial we're walking through, as we see our world around us, as we experience the fears of of, of the uncertain, as we experience the fears of experiencing the fears that we've experienced in the past, as we're going through all whatever we're walking through right now, If we are putting our faith and trust in Jesus, we do not have to act out of panic. Now, that doesn't mean we don't be wise. 
And that doesn't mean that we don't make good, sound decisions, but we don't have to act in panic. We don't make decisions out of, based out of fear. We make our decisions based out of trust. And that I can trust God in this. I can trust Him. Again, that doesn't mean... I trust God, but I am not going to get out today on the, on, in, uh, out on uh, 820 or 20 or 30 or 35 and stand in the middle of the freeway and say, I trust God. You know, somebody's going to say, splat, you know, I'm dead. I'm not, saying don't be, I'm not saying be foolish. But I can get in my car and drive on 820 and 35 and, and 30 today. And I don't have to be afraid. Still may end up in a wreck, but God's got me. Even as Jubal said earlier, even if if things don't turn out well, God's still got me. He's still got me. So that's one way that it should affect us. We're hurting right now. A lot of things going on right now. But we do not we should not be responding like the world responds out of panic. We respond out of the fact that we're in God's hands. We still pray. We still are concerned. We still cry out to God. We still might feel we still might experience feelings of anxiety. We still might have feelings of doubt, but we, we still we still go to God, even in our doubt, even in our anxiety, even in our fear. We go to God. I believe, help thou my unbelief. Second thing is honor and shame. Honor and shame. The world of Peter was an honor-shame culture. We don't have much. We used to have that in our culture. And we still do to some extent, but not near like it was. In the, I mean, Peter's culture is an Asian culture. But not near as much as it was in the first century. But think about what's going on here. What's going on to these people? Public shaming... Public shaming was a means of social control to pressure this minority community of believers to conform to the values and standards of conduct promoted by the prevailing culture. Let me read that again. Public shaming was a means of social control to pressure this minority community of believers to conform to the values and standards of conduct promoted by the prevailing culture. That was in first century. Does that sound familiar to you? Anybody ever heard of being politically correct? That's not something new. That's been going on for a long time. We just think we're smart because we put a label on. Despite the shameful treatment they received from society, Peter encourages the believing community that they and not their accusers are the ones who receive the true honor by believing in Jesus Christ. Our culture will try to shame us or try to persecute us. You believe the Bible? What kind of Neanderthal are you? What do you what do you mean marriage is for one man and one woman? What what ignorant rock did you just crawl out from under? 
Really? You think God wrote the script? Really? Where'd you get them your education at? Dumb you? Really? You believe there's a God? I mean, look at the world around us. Look what's going on in Afghanistan and Haiti and, and the hurricane that's getting ready to come up into New Orleans. You really believe there's a God? I mean, you must be some ignorant southerner fundamentalist. goes on all the time. All the time. But it's nothing new. It's nothing new. Peter wants to encourage them that it's not them that they're the ones to be shamed. It's actually their accusers. Because believers receive their honor from God. And those who don't will be sent to an everlasting shame. Look at the text. He says, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The first two words, and I've got them up there for you, it looks like an O-U and then a U and an N. It's ume. Ume is two words that are put together that means when you when you put them together it becomes an idiom that means this never no 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 never or we might say no way jose huh, you know never 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 ne- no, no what about this situation never what about this situation? Never. What about this situation? Never. Now, does that mean we're not going to be shamed by our culture? Is Jesus is, is saying that we don't get, we're not going to experience shame in our culture today? And that's not what it's saying. That's not what it, we're going to get shamed in our culture. It's not saying that we're never going to experience shame from, from our culture. We're going to experience shame from our culture. We're going to be shunned by our culture. But we're never going to experience shame before God. Never, no, never, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He says, so the honor is for you who believe. We are honored by God. That honor is the same honor that God is going to give to Jesus Christ. Was Jesus Christ put to shame on this earth? Yeah, wasn't he? Crucified naked on a cross. There's no loincloth there that the artist put for modesty's sake. He stripped naked and put on that cross and beaten and spit upon and whipped and mocked and scorned, laughed at. You saved others, can't you save yourself? You're really him. Come down off that cross. Over and over and over. But he took all that shame that we deserve so that we don't have to experience the shame of God. Was he shamed on earth? He sure was. Will we be shamed on this earth? We sure will. We sure will. But the honor 
is for you who believe. Again, remember I told you in verse 7, the first word is to you. To you, therefore, the honor. To you, therefore, the honor for the believing ones. To the believing ones. To you, therefore, the honor to the believing ones. We are honored by God. We're honored by God. The prevailing culture under the control and influence of Satan seeks to steal your identity by means of persecution and shame. Why do they persecute believers? So they'll deny Christ. So they'll get in line with everybody else and deny Christ. Why are believers shamed? So they'll get in line with everybody else and deny Christ. And deny Christ. The prevailing culture under the control and influence of Satan seeks to steal your identity by means of persecution and shame. But Peter reminds these believers that despite how much shame and persecution they've received from their present culture, they are privileged, they are delivered, and they are held in honor by God because of their belief in Christ. And so, no matter what I'm going through, no matter what I'm experiencing, because I am putting my faith in Christ, and because I'm part of the covenant community, not a covenant of circumcision, but a covenant made with the precious blood of Christ, which we will celebrate next Sunday when we observe the Lord's table and we read, this is the New Testament or the New Covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Because of the covenant we have with Christ through His shed blood, we can put our trust in Him. And even though shamed and shunned by the world, and even though the circumstances that we're facing are difficult and, and, and hurtful, and, 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 and the pressure is, 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 seems to be just growing and growing, we can still trust Christ. Because if we put our trust in Him, we'll never be ashamed. We won't experience the shame of denying Christ. May we not allow the enemy to rob us of our identity. A people who value the honor of God more than the honor of man. That's who we are. A people who value the honor of of God more than the honor of man. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for its depth, yet its simplicity. We pray you apply the truth to our lives and help us to think well about who we are in Christ this week. For we pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. His heads are bowed and eyes are closed. We don't have an altar call, but we do have an invitation. First, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, that's where it begins. Your only hope of not being shamed when you stand before God, as the text says, for those who believe. What is belief in Christ? 
It's not just believing that he existed. It's believing about who he is and what he said, his teachings, his life and his teachings. That because of our sin, we are separated from God. We are at war with God. God's wrath abides on us. But when we put our faith and trust in who Jesus is, in his, in his person and in his work, that he is the Son of God and God the Son who added to himself humanity, our Creator added to himself humanity, became like the creature, lived the kind of life, lived the same way that we live, experienced the same things that we experienced, yet did so without ever sinning against God and offered up his perfect life as a sacrifice for my sins and your sins. He took the wrath of God upon that cross. And when we put our faith and trust in him because there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God because we're broken, we're sinners by birth, we're sinners by choice. But when we put our faith and trust in him, we're born again. We become a child of God and we possess eternal life at that moment. Not just length, but quality of life. The very quality of God's life becomes part of our life. If you've never done that, you can do that today. And Right now, just pray and ask God to forgive you of your sins and put your faith and trust in Christ and what He's done for you on the cross. And if you do that, please come and talk with us after the service. You'll want to talk with us after the service. And we can tell That's just the beginning. That, that's, that's just, that's, again... When a child is born, that's just the beginning. And for those of us who are believers, may we continually put our faith and trust in Christ and recognize who we are. The world's going to shun us. The world's going to shame us. That's, that's going to happen. Then we have a decision to make. Whose honor are we going to value the most? The honor that the world can give us? Or that people can give us? Or the honor that comes from God? Will we put our trust in Egypt? Or will we put our trust in the covenant that God made with us through Jesus Christ? Where's our trust? Let's go to the Lord in a time of silence. And after that, we'll close out our services today.